Well, the Pac-12 hasn't announced any expansion yet. Should it be two schools? Should it be four schools? Right now, not necessarily forever, the answer is two schools. You are Locked On Pac-12, your daily podcast on the Pac-12 Conference. It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Locked On Pack 12. I'm your host, Spencer McLaughlin. Thank you so much for making this your first listen or your first view of the day. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day, and your number one source to stay up to date with our media rights free and beloved Conference of Champions. Like, comment, subscribe, rate, review, please, and thank you wherever you listen to or watch this show. Lots to get to today. Two schools against four schools. We are going to talk about, you know, some actual football on today's show. I know, revolutionary concept there. And a little bit of history later, too. But lots of mailbag on today's show, which you can always be a part of. Hit me up on the YouTubes via the comment section, of course. Or hit me up on Twitter at smalls underscore 55 or at LO underscore pack 12. This from Citronaut96. You guys have some clever names. Question, though. Presuming that happens, we were talking about something else in the comment section. You can do that, too. I'm always available. And no other dominoes fall. Do you see the pack just adding two teams or adding four? a la Colorado State and Rice or Tulane, maybe even reaching for UTSA and making it the pack of 14. Now, this kind of prompted me to think about, you know, two schools, four schools, what's better, what's ideal. Two schools, I think, is the ideal number right now for, for a couple of reasons. Number one, you know how the conference operates with 12 schools and the Big 12 added four. But that's because they were going from 10 down to 8. They added 4 to get back up to 12, got the requisite amount of inventory for you know their, their media partners. So they're going forward with 12. In the Big 10 and the SEC, you have 16, 14 in the ACC. I think 12 is enough. I think 10 is too few. But I think 12 is a good number for the Pac-12 for that reason because it gives you enough. But it also provides the opportunity for those schools to actually build themselves up and establish themselves as a potential brand in the conference, whether that's football, men's basketball, or, you know, maybe both. You never know. So I think that the prospect of adding four schools isn't appealing right now, because if you add four, what you're going to have in that potential situation, let's let's just say hypothetically, the Pac-12 is about to catch us all way, 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 way off guard and add four schools, San Diego State, SMU, and let's say it's Colorado State and Tulane, right? Let's just, just as a hypothetical, you pair San Diego State with Utah, Colorado State with Colorado, Tulane and SMU would, would go together in terms of travel partners for scheduling purposes. If you do that, you then have four schools that are attempting to make a jump to make your conference better, to make your conference as strong as it can possibly be, not necessarily as good as it was before, but to improve the depth of quality teams in your league. And those schools would all be fighting the same sort of battle. Number one, well, I'll get to that factor later, but they would be fighting the same battle on, on the acquisition of talent. So I've long talked about here on the show and continue to believe that if you are a G5 school and you then go to the Power 5 level in the transfer portal era, you can get your roster up to speed a lot quicker than you used to because you can add a lot more players who are Power 5 capable players that are ready to make an impact 
right away rather than having to go recruit them and then develop them a little bit. You can get guys who are further along in the process in that front. But if you add two schools to your conference, it might not make a ground altering difference, but it's going to cut down on, on the pool of players that one team or uh, two teams could get because they're going to be going after the same sorts of players. And I think over the course of you know an entire offseason putting together a roster there, you could potentially hinder. I know there are a lot of players that, that are in the portal here, but if you're talking about, you know, uh, Colorado is an exception, right? Colorado is always an exception when you're talking about the portal. They've added 50 or, or, or some odd players. So let's say a typical, like, big transfer portal class is somewhere in the neighborhood of mm, 20 kids, right? Let's say of those 20 kids, and this is, you know, kind of what, what the data tend to reflect when you're bringing in transfers. 15 of them are going to be ready to contribute and do so and our starting caliber players are solid and can help you be a more competitive team and address needs that you might have had after you know whatever has transpired in the offseason there. If that happens and you are even taking away just a couple players from each of those schools because you have two other schools that are trying to vie for the same sorts of players, which are power five players at other schools that weren't able to cut it on you know roster A, B, or C and are suddenly looking for an opportunity to go play, you might only cut down on that by a couple players per school, right? I'm not saying you would suddenly go from having being able to bring in, you know, 15 starting caliber players in a big uh, offseason with, with the transfer portal to suddenly you're only going to bring in five. But if that number even goes down to like 13 or 12, because, yeah, you were going after this kid too who, you know, couldn't cut it at Georgia, but suddenly is trying to come to a Pac-12 school and he wants an opportunity to play. Also, don't forget that the other pack schools are also going after those same sorts of kids. So it, it gets just more competitive on that front. And I think it's then harder for either of those or for any of those teams to build themselves up into, into a football power, not substantially, but marginally. And I think that if you're at, you know, when you're losing USC and UCLA, Pac-12 has got a big perception problem, right? There's just no other way to put it, whether that's, you know, the media rights stuff or whether that's the, uh, you know, conference uh, depth stuff with football and men's basketball and losing USC and UCLA. They are definitely punishing blows on that front, more so on, on the media rights stuff than on, you know, the, the competitiveness of the conference and the caliber of teams that, that are in there. But both are definitely losses. If you're going to add any schools, you want to give them the best opportunity to set themselves up for success. It doesn't automatically mean, it's not like the conference is going to you know, show them a favor. It doesn't mean the conference is going to, get out of here, bug. We don't have time for that right now. We have important matters to get to. Mosquitoes, goodness gracious, gnats, whatever they are. Anyway, so you don't have the ability or you don't have the desires of conference to say, oh, we're going to give special treatment to San Diego State and SMU if we add them and you know, try to make them into a conference contender and whatnot. No one is, I, I think, suggesting that. But what you should do if you're the PAC is when you bring in new schools, you want them to have every opportunity to, yeah, they have to do things right within their own athletic department for sure, but you want them to have every opportunity to compete as quickly as possible. Because the sooner that the Pac-12, you know, let's presume just, you know, and this is a crazy speculation on my part, of course, let's presume that Pac-12 gets a media deal and does not crumble and cease to exist in the next next few weeks. Let's, let's say that happens. Uh, let's also say, just for the sake of argument, that San Diego State and SMU are the two schools that, that are added there. 
You want them to have every opportunity and the best possible opportunity to be good as quickly as possible. Because when you lose USC and UCLA, particularly in football, imagine what it does for your conference. If San Diego State or SMU, pick whichever one your favorite is. Uh, you know, a lot of SMU people have been in my mentions lately. Totally here for that. A lot of San Diego State people have long been in my mentions for a while. Totally here for that too. I'm not saying that in a negative way. I feel like that comes off that way of like, oh, they've been in my mentions, blah, blah, blah. Some negative people are, but I don't talk to those people. We talk to the San Diego State and SMU people all the time because I'd like them to join the pack. But you want them to have the best chance to come in and have a great season. Like, let's say San Diego State and SMU get added for the 2024-25 athletic season. If San Diego State comes in and picks up a major, I haven't looked at their non-conference schedule, but scheduling is broken as we all know in college football, as I've long advocated for here on the show. If they come in and they have a top 25 caliber season by the time the year comes to a close, they win, you know, a solid bowl game in year one. Again, this could be San Diego State or SMU. Right now, San Diego State would seem more likely, but hey, it's the NIL and Portal era. You never know with SMU. We'll watch how they how they do this year in the American and what is hopefully their, their final year there. Uh, that's the Mustangs, of course, the Aztecs in, in the Mountain West. But if in year one, one of those schools has like a top 25 caliber season and they're kind of getting some buzz going into the next year and then they pick up a big win and then they have a great season. Say they put together, you know, a year like Tulane just had and they go to a New Year's Six Bowl and they, they win a game that nobody expects them to. That puts your conference in a stronger position football-wise than it was previously. And I think the best opportunity for a school to do that is by just adding two schools rather than adding four. But as always, I am curious as to your comments, drop or your thoughts rather, drop them in the comment section on YouTube or hit me up on Twitter at smalls underscore 55 or at LO underscore pack 12. So that's why for now I would say two is a good number rather than four. I do think you have to have two. I don't think you can go forward with 10. There's some people feel that that is a more desirable option. I don't share that opinion, but I respect you if you think that. I'm not the sort of guy that says anybody who disagrees with me is a horrible, terrible, no good, very bad person. We can reasonably, reasonable people can disagree on matters of grand importance. It's college sports. We're not saving lives over here, but you might be able to save your bank account if you go check out FanDuel because baseball season is in full swing and there's no better place to get in on the action than FanDuel, America's number one sports book. Right now, new customers get a no-sweat first bet up to $1,000. That's $1,000 back in bonus bets if your first bet doesn't win. Just go to FanDuel.com slash locked on to join today. You can bet Pac-12 over-under win totals. You can bet individual games already. If you think Colorado is being disrespected as a 20-point underdog week one at TCU, go bet the buffs. Go bet them over there. They're a big, big time underdog. Whatever you want, don't miss your chance to snag a no sweat first bet up to a thousand up to a thousand dollars when you join FanDuel today. Just go to FanDuel.com slash locked on to sign up. FanDuel official partner of Major League Baseball. As always, there's our needed second segment sip, and we're ready to keep things going. So let's talk about some football here. Let's talk about some actual honest to God football. It's, it almost feels like a mental relaxation, doesn't it? You know, when I was uh, in college, I studied abroad for a few months in Spain, trying to, you know, learn Spanish as well as, as I can. And immersing yourself in that culture, as everyone always says, the classic cliche, best way to learn a language, 100% true. But one weekend, I ventured out and was traveling around. And I went to London for a weekend. And I remember 
the feeling of relaxation and calm and ease that my brain felt not having to think to speak. Now, as time went on, I didn't have to think as much being in Spain, but still I have to think more to speak Spanish than I do in English, where you just, you don't have to think to speak, you just speak. You decide what you're talking about. That's how it feels talking about actual football for a change here on the show. And I wanted to just kind of throw that in there to give us all a little bit of, just a little break, just a little rest, relaxation from all the realignment and the media rights stuff and blah, 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 blah. And there were people taking uh, shots at what was said on this show yesterday. And I'm, I'm not even going to dive into that sort of stuff because I don't think it's worth anybody's time, frankly. I, I, I really don't. I could. Yeah, I'm not going to. Uh, you can message me about it. I'll tell you why. But anyway, so uh, let's go to ESPN's football power index, which going into the 2023 season has got not one, not two, not three, not four, but five Pac-12 schools in the ESPN FPI top 25, which is weird because I thought the Pac-12 was a terrible conference. <laughs> How wrong those people are. But for however long it exists. But... <laughs> ESPN's FPI. This is their football power index. Now, a, a, a bit of context here. ESPN's FPI is not a perfect indication of how seasons are going to play out. It's not a perfect indication of who beats whom. It's not a perfect indication of who's going to win the national championship. But it is an indicator that is based on data, that's based on metrics that they use I'm not privy to exactly what those mathematical calculations are. What I do know is that I thought there was an interesting, interesting lineup of teams here for the Pac-12 uh, going into the 2023 season. And the best example, by the way, if you're in the if you're in the camp of like, oh, FPI doesn't mean anything. It's irrelevant. It's all this sort of stuff. Texas is the best example because no matter how many times Texas lost last year. ESPN still had them like as an FPI top 10 team. And by the way, they love Texas again this year. Are they wrong? Maybe. But I think it's frankly the classic intersection of, of data and it factor or the human element because number, right? Like Moneyball, for instance, the best sports movie of all time. Moneyball is correct that you can find value in players without paying you know, just top dollar for the biggest names and going out and being a big spender. You can build a good team that way. That model did work. However, the right blend to be successful from what I've seen is use analytics as a guide, but don't use analytics as God. That's a great way, I think, to look at it. The Houston Rockets, for instance, went all through the regular season with the James Harden teams and Mike D'Antoni, and they're just shooting a bunch of threes, shooting a bunch of threes. Analytics say that that should make you better, that that's the best way to, that that's going to win you the most games. They didn't even reach the NBA Finals. You know why? Because they missed 27 in a row, an anomaly, but their mindset was we have to keep shooting the threes, not go take a mid-range jumper every now and then. There's a balance here. Analytics are a driving force but they should not be blindly followed to the point where you say, oh, okay, the numbers say this, that means that's that. Eh, no, no, no. Much like I say with stats when interpreting a box score in a game, stats are a starting point, not an end point. So let's consider this a starting point reference for how ESPN's FPI feels about Pac-12 teams going into this year. 
They, much like me and many of you, anticipate this is going to be a highly competitive Pac-12 season with a lot of really good football. And the quarterbacks are, of course, the driving force for that with the Pac-12, in my view, pretty easily being the best quarterback conference in America, which is a pretty cool thing to say. We've got the number one overall pick in uh, Caleb Williams. We've got another couple potential first rounders in Michael Penix and Bo Nix. And you just keep going down the list and you're like, wait, Cam Rising's won back-to-back Pac-12 championships, and he's like fourth on the quarterbacks list at best. Ah, yeah, that is really good because it is really good. So according to ESPN's FBI, their top 25 includes five Pac-12 schools. At number seven, they have USC. That's the only Pac-12 school in the top 10 right now. This can change. This can change depending on how teams do. Win a couple of big non-conference games and maybe you go up these sorts of lists. and Maybe the data reflects something different with regards to your team wherever they fall. But Oregon was next at tied for 13th with Florida State. Uh, that's an ACC school. I just thought, you know, a lot of hype around Florida State this year. That's how FPI feels about Oregon and Florida State. The same. Utah comes in at number 15. Washington at 21. Oregon State at 24. Now, the school that is considered a contender this year because they have a win total of 8.5 or higher, according to our friends at FanDuel, the school that's not on there is UCLA. Now, some people on this show, or maybe one person, maybe the host of this show in particular, has suggested that in a quarterback-heavy league, a team with mm, some quarterback questions or not as much certainty and such in UCLA might finish last amongst that group. Now, that means they could still go 7-5, and 8-4, and four, be a good football team this year. But if I had to pick one team, like I agree with ESPN's FBI here that UCLA, I think, is the most poised to be a pullback team amongst all the conference contenders. But I was a little surprised, not a lot, but a little surprised given UCLA brought in another good portal class. We we don't really know, or at least I haven't looked into recently, what they're doing at the quarterback situation. But you've you've got Ethan Garbers, you've got Dante Moore, you've got Colin Schley. It feels like that could be a revolving door at one point in time or another. But I think a, a couple things stood out to me the most here. First of all, Washington at 21 that feels low. That 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 like to not have Washington in the top 20 there, that feels low. Oregon State at 24, I understand. I would probably put them a touch higher, but I I think overall that that's not an unreasonable place to to have Oregon State. You know, they are right in front of North Carolina. They're right behind Baylor. I think Baylor's a bounce back team in in college football this year, but I, I feel like, you know, Texas Tech is also pretty high on that list at 22 right behind Washington. And and that's kind of where I feel this is a little bit off. And again, starting point, not an end point. I think Washington at 21 is a little bit low. And honestly, I, I feel like Utah at 15 is a little high just because, just because. I'm not saying, you know, they should be outside the top 25 or even outside the top 20. But I would put Washington at 15. And I would put Utah closer to 20 just because I think you have a higher ceiling at quarterback with Michael Penix. And though he's had an injury history himself, he was kept upright all of last year. And Cam Rising is going to be coming off an injury. Now, all, all signs have pointed towards him you know, being able to play this year. 
but I just don't it like it it still just feels like you you're hanging on kind of by a thread there. Not entirely. I'm not saying Utah's gonna be bad or Cam Rising's a disaster. I'm not saying anything like that. What I am saying is that a guy who suffered a significant injury in January and is going to try to play right away in September, actually on August 31st, but okay, basically September. In September, it just gives me pause. That's all it is. It just gives me a, a little bit of pause. And I just look at what Washington is bringing back. You know, they need to make some defensive strides. So does Oregon. Oregon State's got to try to stay at that defensive level that they were at a, a season ago. But everything else to me, honestly, I felt like Oregon was was a touch high there. Perhaps that might be ESPN liking the offseason moves that they've made. But I think rather than drop Oregon down, like when I think about, you know, where Oregon is in relation to, to, to these other schools, do I feel like they're about two spots ahead, you know, for a metric like football power index of Utah? Probably. Do I feel like they're eight spots ahead of Washington? No. No, I, no, I do not. I think that is too large of a gap. Uh, in my view, I think that's underselling Washington a little bit. But as always, I'm curious as you guys' thoughts, so drop them in the YouTube comments below. But I, I think the FPI is is roughly correct here. I just think Washington is a touch low. I think Utah is a touch high. All the other ones I, I feel like are are about right. And USC being the favorite, by the way, got no qualms with that whatsoever. They are, I guess I haven't made officially a pick to win the Pac-12 at this point in time, but if you had to give me one, yeah, I'd go with USC because they have the best player in the country in Caleb Williams. It's not as if Lincoln Riley hasn't won conference championships before. This was a raging debate on Twitter. I think it was uh, last week. Speaking of my my mentions popping off, whether or not Lincoln Riley is as good of a coach, whether or not he's overrated, underrated, or well, no, the conversation was centered around is is he overrated. I don't think that that is, is the case because people say, well, you know, he hasn't won a national championship. Yeah, I wasn't, I, w- I wasn't putting him above, you know, Nick Saban or Kirby Smart or Davo because he hasn't done that yet. But just ask yourself this question. Of the coaches who haven't won a national championship, who would you most like to have? I, I mean, there are a lot of names out there. Are there any that automatically are going, oh, I'm taking him over Lincoln Riley? Brian Kelly, maybe. I'm going Lincoln Riley, by the way. I, I, I would take Lincoln over Brian Kelly. I think both are really good head coaches. Their resumes have, have, have borne that out. But you give me Lincoln Riley, you give me Caleb Williams, those weapons. And, you know, we, we, we tend to forget because of how, you know, the end of a season can really leave a lasting impression. I see this with uh, the Oregon fans I talk to all the time on Locked on Ducks. Like, it, it's... It was a frustrating end of the season to Oregon, losing to your two rivals in in the fashion that they did. They did win the Holiday Bowl to, you know, sweeten the pot a little bit, but still, it was not the end of the year Oregon fans were, were looking for. But it, it just kind of takes everything away from what was an eight-game winning streak in which Oregon was, was blowing a lot of teams out, in which they looked really, really good. And USC looked really, really good, but all we remember are them getting beaten twice by Utah and blowing it in the Cotton Bowl against Tulane. That's all we remember. We don't remember the part where they were one win away against Utah in in the Pac-12 championship game from being in the college football playoff. 
Tell me, do coaches typically that are good ones, the way Lincoln Riley is, get better the longer they are at a place or worse? Because if USC was one win away, I feel like they've made some roster improvements, particularly along the defensive line, which was a weakness for them at times a, a year ago. They struggled to get pressure on Cam Rising consistently. They couldn't stop through. I mean, well, mostly they couldn't tackle. That was that was a big problem for them too. But I just look at what USC was last year, and if you just apply a standard you know, improvement in year two under a coach. Hard to not like him as, as as the favorite right now, but might have to dive into that more as the show continues. Uh, we're wrapping up with a little bit of history here. I love this question from uh, Doniel Johnson, 2247. It says, uh, hey, bud, can you mention how Montana and Idaho used to be in the pack? Maybe do a segment on the history of the conference. Um, yeah. So I, I wanted to do this. When, because when the question came in, I thought, oh, that's actually really, really interesting. Why didn't I think of that? That's why I love your mailbag questions. Again, YouTube comments or on Twitter at smalls underscore underscore 55 or at LO underscore pack 12. Because today's actions are tomorrow's history. So everything that's taking place right now, one day we'll look back upon and say, oh gosh, I remember when that happened. Oh gosh, I remember. But you know, conference realignment is in a different era now. It's in. It's got a different feel. It's got a different mood. It's got a different tone, a different tenor of sorts. But conference realignment itself and big time major moves, that's not new. So the schools he asked about here are both currently FCS football programs and have been for quite some time. Though Idaho had a brief little stint as I will uh, get to here. But it is interesting, I think, to look at, you know, the Pac-12 is made up of Oregon, Washington, California, Arizona, now Utah, Colorado. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa hold on. Why are we, we, we skipped over, what about Nevada? What about Idaho? What about Montana? What about New Mexico? Why aren't these schools in it? There are a lot of factors that go into it, because who drives realignment? Every day is know the answer to that question. It's presidents. Presidents drive realignment. So, uh... A little bit of, of history here to wrap up wrap up today's show. So Idaho was a founding member, along with Montana, of the Big Sky Conference in 1963. Now, two other schools that were in there at the time were Boise State and Nevada, or who had come in at, at, different, at different points in time. So Boise State and Nevada left the Big Sky in 1993. Idaho left in 1995. Idaho then went to uh, the Sun Belt and the WAC, and then back to the Sun Belt, uh, and then and then to the Big Sky, from 2001 to 2017. So they they kind of bounced around a little bit. Idaho has bounced around a lot, and so when they went from from the Big Sky to the Sun Belt, and then into the WAC, and then they actually won the famous Idaho Potato Bowl in 2016. They then played just one more FBS football season in 2017, and then they went back to the Big Sky for 2018, and they did so voluntarily. And it's not the first time they've made a jump like that. So they were a founding member of, of the Big Sky. They were in it until uh, 1995 after they'd been uh, independent for a few years. But what, you know, the question that, that you're referring, referring to here, Daniel Johnson, 2247, is when they were in the pack. There was a point in time in which both Montana and Idaho were in what was then the PAC conference or the Pacific Coast Conference is what it was referred to. Now that league, as I'll get to, doesn't exist anymore. But there was a point in time in which Idaho 
had consistent rivalries and with and wanted to continue playing against Oregon, Oregon State, and Washington State. This is a very, very real thing. And from 1922 to 1958, when the league ultimately folded, they were in the Pacific Coast Conference. But then they ended up leaving, and they couldn't keep up financially. And the president... <clears throat> who drives realignment? Oh, yeah, the president's right, right, right. Okay, got it. The president made the call that they were not going to continue in that league. Now, Montana, alternatively, was in the Pacific Coast Conference from 1924 to 1949. They then went independent for a year before joining a different league known as the Mountain States Conference until 1961. And no, I hadn't heard of that either until I started preparing for this segment. Montana was then independent in 1962, and they joined the Big Sky in 1963 as a founding member along with Idaho, Idaho State, Montana State, Weber State, and Gonzaga, and they've been in the league ever since. So for Montana, my understanding is that part of the reason that they... Uh, that, that they did not continue in, in the league. I believe there was a financial component, but there was also, uh, you know, the Pacific Coast Conference, which is where current Pac-12 schools, they count it as, uh, uh, as part of their history, by the way. If you go look at, like, history of the Pac-12 Conference, the Pacific Coast Conference days are, are in there. And it did include Montana and Idaho, which are now playing FCS football. And, and by the way, if we're thinking, like, way, way down the line for schools that could go FCS to FBS and then maybe G5 FBS to Power 5, the Montana schools would not sleep on those whatsoever they have fantastic environments the geography like they're great in the big sky they are headliner programs on the football field they've got a big game that uh they play it's the uh oh gosh i am in so much trouble for not remembering the name of that game i have to look it up oh goodness i am in uh, so so much uh, trouble for not remembering the name brawl of the wild that's what it's known as. Great game. Awesome environment. They love their FCS football up there. But the Pacific Coast Conference ceased to continue to exist. It ultimately folded because of a scandal that came about. If you think paying players is only something that happened in the 90s, you would be wrong. So the scandal first broke at Washington in 1956, when several discontented players staged a mutiny against their football coach, John Sherbrooke. The coach was fired. The PCC followed up on charges of a slush fund, and they found evidence of prohibited activities of the Greater Washington Advertising Fund by, uh, by a guy at the school there at the time. So those allegations then kind of carried over to, wait, this is happening at another school as well. This is not okay. So then they went to impose sanctions on everybody. But then the sanctions didn't go over super well. And they had to basically come up with a plan, what they called the five-point plan, emphasizing academic eligibility standards and, and a variety of other kind of ethical factors to steer the conference back on course. And then UCLA got involved, but then they felt like there was favoritism towards uh, towards Berkeley and that that wasn't going to go in, in their favor. And so the scandal then just kind of continued and it snowballed, it evolved, and then the conference folded. And that's why those teams ended up going elsewhere. That's part of how the Pac-12 as we know it was born. But Montana and Idaho 
opted to go elsewhere and were not playing in in, in the conferences that you know have become the the Pac-12 conferences. So Idaho did have a stint where they were FBS football for quite a while. It didn't go particularly well. So they, you know, cut back on on the funding to it and they went FCS, which doesn't, you know, uh, require as much money as a school. And they're still in the big sky to this day. So there's our history segment for the day. I love doing that. Used to do a a daily history segment on uh, my radio show, my first job out of college and in Wilberton, Oklahoma at Eastern Oklahoma State. Fun fact. So uh, I love doing that. As always, keep the questions coming. I will always answer them. Love diving into anything and everything you all are thinking about. Appreciate everyone listening. I will see you next time. And until then, hope you have a wonderful rest of your day.